Lord Jesus, we come before you and thank you for the words of these songs that you are worthy of, that you are holy, you are our righteous king, and truly when we think on the gospel, regardless of the circumstances of our lives, it is well with our soul. And we thank you that only you can minister to us in that way, only you can make the broken whole, only you can sustain us. Only you can finish the work that you have begun. You can keep us until the day that we see you face to face, and we thank you for that. Father, we lift up uh, the rest of this worship service that you would continue to help us to look to you, that you would aid us in doing so, for we need you, Lord. Father, we pray for other churches here in our county we lift up Bethel Baptist Church, Lord. We ask that you would continue to work in them and through them. We thank you uh, that you have given us other gospel-preaching churches in this area. Lord, that you would strengthen them and encourage them. And Father, help them to look to your word and be changed by it and trust you, Lord, as you are um, uh, giving yourself uh, through your spirit to mold and shape each local assembly. So we lift them to you, Lord. Father, we lift up our other uh, churches in the Reformed Baptist Network. We uh, lift up Cornerstone Bible Church, Lord, in Ridgecrest, California, that you would be with them. We thank you for them. We thank you for the network and how we can uh, aid each other and pray for each other and encourage one another. Father, we lift them to you and uh, strengthen the elders there, Lord, and give them great guidance in ministering the gospel to that region of California. And Lord, that you would build up and mature the body of Christ there. Father, we don't forget to pray for um, the persecuted church. Uh, Lord, we lift up uh, the persecuted church in Iraq uh, this morning to you. Lord, we thank you for the work that you are doing in the Middle East. And that, Lord, even closed or so-called restricted countries cannot uh, keep you from doing your regenerating work in the lives of people. And Lord, as that happens... Uh, we find that new believers are, are being persecuted, and so we lift our brethren to you. We ask that you would strengthen them, uh, Lord, if they've been arrested, uh, that you would uh, meet them, even this hour in prison, that you would put songs in their heart as you did with Paul and Silas when they were found worthy to be uh, suffering harm for your name's sake. Father, for those that face death, that you would help them to be courageous to the end. And Father, help us to remember them as if we were in uh, chains with them. Father, we pray for the unreached people groups around the world. We know that you have called us to take your gospel. And Lord, we are amazed that the sun rises and sets on people for a lifetime and they have not heard of your gospel. And so Lord, we uh, continue to lift up uh, the Bushi people, Lord, of uh, Mayotte uh, in near Madagascar, Lord, the islands there, that you would bring the gospel to them. And while there's much Western influence through tourism and other things, that Lord, you would bring missionaries to them that would uh, give themselves uh, to these people. And Lord, that we would see a Bible translation project started amongst them, Lord, soon. And uh, Father, that you would uh, bring them all that they need and that you would redeem many from that people. Father, we lift up the war in Ukraine and the troubled spots around our world that bring all of us uh, angst, that we trust uh, you in that. We know that you are sovereignly working all things according to uh, the counsel of your will, and we know that you move the hearts of kings uh, like streams of water. 
We know that ultimately you are in control, even though this is a sin-struck world. And so we pray for the church in Russia and the church in Ukraine and other troubled spots like Sudan and Ethiopia. Lord, that you would strengthen the brethren there, that you would give them hope and that you would encourage them, Lord, to look to uh, the celestial city where our King of Kings and Prince of Peace will reign. And Father, help us to be good citizens in this world with so many trying circumstances. Father, be with refugees in many places. Be with our military. Uh, be, be with those who are grieving, Lord, the loss of loved ones. Father, we thank you uh, for the joys that we're able to experience this week as we celebrate with John and Ellie the birth of their baby boy. And Lord, that you would uh, continue to bring uh, strength to Ellie, Lord, as she heals. And Lord, uh, bring them great joy in these early days as a family, that you would strengthen them, encourage them, and help them. Father, we pray for Sarah Furches as well as she has is with child and Lord, as she looks to later in the year to deliver, that you would give her a healthy pregnancy. We thank you for her, Lord, and thank you for the family. And be with Brian, Lord, as he uh, preaches and uh, uh, is, is involved in other uh, opportunities and other churches, Lord, that you would strengthen him and his family. Father, we pray uh, for continued um, strength for the Schwartz family, Lord, as they grieve the loss of Kelsey, Amy's sister. And Lord, that you would um, bring them back safely to us from Connecticut as they return. Father, thank you for the continued healing that you are bringing uh, to many. We think of uh, Dean Mundy, Lord, that you would continue uh, to help him with uh, Bell's palsy, Lord, that you would heal him, Lord, and that he could get back to work soon. Father, for the continued healing that you've given Lisa Lemire, Lord, and what you're doing in her life. We lift up... Uh, uh, the RBNet missionary, John Cordy, Lord, as he continues to battle esophageal cancer. And Lord, we uh, very much uh, missed him, Lord, as he was uh, scheduled to be here just last month. And we ask that you would strengthen him and Bethana, Lord, as they go through this cancer journey that you have seen to bring them this year. Uh, Father, that you would strengthen them and encourage them. Um, give grace, we pray. Pray for Christina Grabiel, Lord, as she uh, continues her cancer a journey, and as she is getting treatment um, uh, several times this fall or summer and fall, Lord, that you'd be with her, uh, encourage her and Paul, uh, strengthen them, we pray. Father, thank you for uh, continued healing for Kitty. Uh, we pray for wisdom there as uh, she continues to heal, uh, whether surgery is needed or not, Lord, that you would just continue to uh, help there. Father, we lift up Christ alone to you, Lord, our church plant down in Wilkesboro, that you would strengthen Tim this morning, that you would give him great utterance by your spirit to preach the word. Lord, that uh, you would encourage uh, that church, Lord, even though they're small in number, that, Lord, you are adding to them daily. And, Lord, that they would be faithful in sharing the gospel. Lord, thank you for this outreach idea that they are doing with uh, the back-to-school uh, bash, that you would uh, strengthen them and encourage them, bring great fruit in sharing the gospel with local families and giving out Bibles. Father, would you bring fruit from that, uh, opportunities to have more gospel conversations with uh, the community down there. Thank you for their faithfulness, Lord, and we pray that you would encourage them and uh, bless them, Lord, by your, by your help, we pray. Father, we continue to pray uh, that you would raise up leaders uh, here at the gathering. Uh, we pray, too, for that, for Christ alone. And as Stu Johnston mentioned this morning in Sunday school, for Grace Baptist of Mebane, Lord, that you would raise up lay elders, Lord, to 
uh, serve your people and to lead well and to pastor well as you uh, entrust more souls to them. That, Lord, you would use this work um, there in Mebane and here, Lord, for your gospel's sake and, Lord, for your glory. Father, we pray now as we continue our worship that you would be glorified. We thank you for Stu. We thank you that he is willing to come and share with us. Uh, thank you for the friendship that Grace uh, Baptist of Mebane has extended over the years, the many uh, dear friends we have there. And Father, we thank you for this friendship and the great uh, dear uh, friends that they are. Uh, we lift up the pastors there uh, this morning, Lord, as they are without Stu, that you would uh, just encourage them and give great uh, blessing, Lord, uh, amongst the brethren there. We thank you for this time, Lord. We commit it to you in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, good morning. We are glad to have each of you here this morning. Uh, we want to, uh, as we approach God's word this morning, I want to um, just introduce uh, Stu Johnston uh, to you. Uh, we have a little bio in the bulletin. He's not a stranger around here, but if you're new here, perhaps you have never met him or heard him preach. Um, I won't uh, read the uh, bio, but it's there for you for all the details. We're sad that Beth can't be with him this morning, um, but uh, we are glad uh, that he is here. Uh, he has uh, served Grace Baptist in uh, Mebane for 32 years. We are so thankful for uh, his wisdom and his encouragement uh, over the years and his uh, great wisdom in um, networking uh, with other pastors in this area. We're thankful uh, for you, Stu. Thank you for your willingness to come and your encouragement to us uh, this year. Uh, I want to read uh, the passage for this morning from Matthew 25, and then I will turn it over um, to Pastor Stu Johnston. Would you stand with me as we read God's word? Matthew 25, starting in verse 14. This is the word of God. For it will be like a man going on a journey who called his servants and entrusted to them his property. To one he gave five talents, to another two, to another one, to each according to his ability. Then he went away. He who had received the five talents went at once and traded with them. and He made five talents more. And so also he who had two talents made two talents more. But he who had received the one talent went and dug in the ground and hid his master's money. Now after a long time, the master of those servants came and settled accounts with them. And he who had received the five talents came forward, bringing five talents more, saying, Master, you delivered to me five talents. Here, I have made five talents more. His master said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. And he also who had two talents came forward, saying, Master, you delivered to me two talents, and here I have made two talents more. His master said to him, well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. 
He also, who had received one talent, came forward, saying, Master, I knew you to be a hard man, reaping where you did not sow, and gathering where you scattered no seed. So I was afraid, and I went, and I hid your talent in the ground. Here you have what is yours. But his master answered him, You wicked and slothful servant, you knew that I reap where I have sown, not sown, and gather where I have scattered no seed? Then you ought to have invested the money with the bankers, and at my coming I should have received what was my own with interest. So take the talent from him and give it to him who has ten talents. For to everyone who has will more be given, and he who has abundance but from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. And cast this worthless servant into outer darkness, in that place where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. When the Son of Man comes in his glory with all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. Before him will be gathered all the nations, and he will separate people from one another as a shepherd separates sheep's sheep and goats, and he will place the sheep on his right, but the goats on his left. And then the king will say to those on his right, come, you who are blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry and you gave me food. I was thirsty and you gave me drink. I was a stranger and you welcomed me. I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. And then the righteous will answer him, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you, or thirsty and give you drink? And when did we see you a stranger and welcome you, or naked and clothe you? And when did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will answer them, Truly I say to you, as you did to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. Then he will say to those on his left, Depart from me, you cursed, into an eternal fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry, and you gave me no food. I was thirsty, and you gave me no drink. I was a stranger, and you did not welcome me. Naked, and you did not clothe me. Sick, in prison, and you did not, you did not visit me. Then they also will answer, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry? or thirsty, or a stranger, or naked, or sick, or in prison, and did not minister to you. Then he will answer them truly, I say to you, as you did not do it to the least of these, you didn't, did not do it to me. And these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. This ends the reading of God's word. May yet his blessing to it. You may be seated. Stu, would you come? I do appreciate the opportunity to, uh, to be among you again and to share from God's word this morning. We know from Hebrews 9 and verse 27 that it's appointed for man to die once and after this comes the judgment. One of the things that we can be entirely certain about is that if Jesus does not come back first, you will die and I will die. And at some point afterward, we will stand before our maker 
the Lord Jesus Christ, and we will give an account at the day of judgment. This morning, I want to address with you the question, what will the experience of those who are in Christ be at that coming great tribunal? And I want to answer that question by way of five main points, the first of which is this, a bold assertion on the day of judgment, Christ, in speaking to his people, will say nothing but words of affirmation. Now, let me say here at the beginning of the message that not all serious students of the Bible are, are agreed with that point. So that's why I call it a bold assertion. There are uh, students of the scriptures whom I respect deeply who, uh, who take a slightly different view. But, but my bold assertion that I'm going to seek to demonstrate from the Word of God is that Christ, in speaking to all those who are in him, his followers, his sheep, his bride, that he will have nothing but words of affirmation at that great day when we each stand before him. To affirm is simply to say something positive about someone directly to them. And I understand the scriptures to teach that that is exactly what Jesus will do with his people. He will say something very positive about them directly to them. Think with me about the passage that we just read together from Matthew 25. And think first of what is usually called the parable of the talents. Uh, in that parable, Jesus emphasizes the need for faithfulness. And he also draws attention to their coming a day in which he, the great master of all, will come back and he will call uh, all people to give an account uh, to him of what they've done with what he had entrusted to them. And Jesus, of course, pictures that day by uh, speaking of a master who gave uh, certain portions of talents to three servants and after a long absence comes back and calls those three servants uh, to settle accounts with them. One servant was wicked and lazy. He is condemned. He is punished. The other two were diligent and uh, they were faithful and both are commended and rewarded. The master says to each of those faithful men, well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. Now, it's true that one of those faithful servants produced more than twice as much as the other faithful servant. Uh, he had been given more to begin with. But what I want to draw your attention to is that Jesus speaks to, or the master speaks to each of those faithful servants only words of affirmation. And in this instance, he actually gives them the identical affirmation. He speaks both to the one who had five talents and went out and generated five more. And he speaks to the one who was given two and went out and generated two more. He speaks to them in the identical way. Well done, good and faithful servant. And note that in this parable that draws attention to this great coming day in which accounts will be settled, there's not a word of criticism that is spoken to the two who were faithful. The only thing we see Jesus speaking are words 
of affirmation. When we think about uh, ourselves individually or as we think of ourselves corporately as congregations in this world, we're, we're certainly a mix of, of good and evil, are we not? Uh, you think of, of the churches that Jesus addressed in Asia Minor, uh, seen in Revelation 2 and chapter 3. Uh, most of those churches, there were features about their lives as congregations that deserved censure from the glorified Lord. And in faithfulness and in love, he does speak words of criticism, calling his people to repent. And in our best moments, individually and corporately, we have wrinkles, we have spots, we have blemishes in this life. But according to the parable of the talents, at the final accounting, there will not be a single word of criticism for those that were faithful. They will simply be praised. Think with me about the parable that then follows. It's often called the parable of the sheep and the goats. It's really not a parable because it's actually uh, one of the clearest, perhaps the clearest passages that we find in the whole New Testament concerning the day of judgment. There is a brief allusion to sheep and goats, but it's really just what we call a, a simile, a way of making a comparison. And Jesus is simply emphasizing the point in what he says that he speaks of a coming day when all of humanity, all the nations will be separated into two distinct groups. And that's the point of the simile, like a shepherd separating his flock, the sheep and the goats. Uh, that's really the only uh, parable-like feature of what he says. It's really a very straightforward, prosaic presentation of what that great day uh, will involve when he comes in glory all will be gathered before him and he will speak to his beloved people in the following way, according to verses 34 and following. Then the king will say to those on his right, come you who are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. I was hungry, you gave me food. I was thirsty, you gave me drink and so forth. With some detail, the glorified Christ affirms his people. He, he welcomes them, and uh, he, he speaks of them as, as the blessed. He speaks of them as the heirs of God, those who are to our inner now into an inheritance that has been prepared for them from before the foundation of the world. And the only thing that he says to them, according to this final paragraph in Matthew 25, are words of affirmation that he recognized their love for him and that it came to expression by way of the love they showed for his brethren, those people tied to him. One of the foundational marks of being a true follower of Jesus is that something happens in our hearts with respect to how we relate to the people of Christ. They become the majestic ones in whom is our delight. There's something special about the family of God. And 1 John makes it clear that one of the conspicuous features of God's children is that they recognize a family likeness, a, a unity that the Spirit of God has created through their like faith in Jesus, and they love one another. Well, this passage in Matthew 25 draws attention to Jesus praising his people for the way they showed their love for him by how they showed their love for his brethren. And when 
the brethren express a bewilderment about, well, when did we see you, Lord, and do these things for you? He tells you, he tells them, well, when you did it to these, the least of my brethren, you did it to me. Note again, there's not a word of criticism. Jesus does not point out those numerous times when his people failed to see uh, or to take advantage of an opportunity they had to minister to one of his needy people. Jesus does not draw attention to those times when we did serve his people, but our attitudes were not exactly what they should have been. And there was perhaps some murmuring under the breath about what we were going to have to do in order to meet a given need. Jesus does not criticize those times when motives were less than perfect, and perhaps we were more concerned. I confess to guilt of this as one of one of the pastors of Christ's people, that there are times where uh, I'm sure in a given moment, uh, I don't say this in false humility, I know that there have been times where I was more concerned about what somebody was thinking about me than about what Jesus was thinking. Uh, times when my motive was maintaining appearance more than wanting to honor the God who shed blood for, for me. Jesus, there are all kinds of things that he justly, honestly, could point out where flaws were present, but there's not a word of that. As he addresses the sheep on his right hand, there are simply words of affirmation. Well, we've considered this bold assertion on the day of judgment, Christ, in speaking to his people, will say nothing but words of affirmation. My second point is an unsettling question. An unsettling question which is this, does the Bible not teach that everything, both good and evil, will be revealed on that final day? Are there not passages in the Bible that would lead us to conclude that everything, not just the good, but also the bad and the ugly, will be revealed in that coming day? Now, don't misunderstand the question. The question is not, will Christ's people face condemnation at that day? We can together be united and emphatic in the Bible's declaration that there, there is therefore now, what? No condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Hallelujah. We, we cling to that as the cornerstone of the gospel message. Jesus came to absorb the punishment that you and I deserve for our sins, that all those who believe in him might be forever delivered from the condemnation that we have merited. I'm not, I'm not asking, will there possibly be some punishment meted out, some condemnation at that last day? What I'm asking is, and this is an unsettling question, will there be some measure of exposure of things that we thought, Things that we said, things that we did, perhaps only momentarily, just, just a, a flash. Uh, perhaps, and, and we would anticipate this, certainly, it, it would certainly come in the context of those sins have been forgiven. But while we have been forgiven and Jesus has borne the transgressions of his people, will there yet be however momentary, however wrapped in the reality of we've been redeemed, we've been forgiven, will there be some exposure 
of our worst moments uh, as an expression of, of this was the real us. I really did have those thoughts towards that woman on that occasion. I really did lose it and speak to my children in that way. And yes, I did slam the cabinet door shut uh, in my anger in that moment. Uh, yes, my husband and I or my wife and I really did have that moment where uh, our A game was far distant and we were, we were at our ugliest. Will there be some exposure, again, revealed in the context of you've been forgiven? Is that part of Judgment Day? Well, are there not some passages that suggest that such could be the case? I'll just mention two, and I'll quote them. 2 Corinthians 5 and verse 10 2 Corinthians 5.10 states, We must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. Okay? 2 Corinthians 5.10 Each one must appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. In another text that, that cuts to the bone even more is the way that the sacred book of Ecclesiastes comes to a close in chapter 12 and verse 14. Ecclesiastes 12, 14, God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing whether good or evil. Remember that text from Ecclesiastes? God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. Well, you could see how students of the Bible would, would take texts like that and, and say, well, it, it seems that in some way it, the video is going to show it all. Maybe only for a moment. Praise God. Uh, those who are in Jesus have been delivered forever from condemnation. But nevertheless, the video, at least for a moment, is going to show every secret thought. Not to mention things that spilled out through words that we spoke or things that we actually did that maybe other people actually witnessed. Well, in my judgment... In my understanding of the Bible, these passages do not necessarily convey that each individual will be judged for both his good things and his bad things. Let me say that again. In my understanding of the Bible, these texts, 2 Corinthians 5.10, Ecclesiastes 12.14, others that could be turned to, do not necessarily teach that each and every individual will be judged both for their good and they're bad things. And this leads into my third point. In my understanding of the scriptures, the sum total of who we really were is what is going to be revealed and what is going to be addressed at the day of judgment. That our lives are going to be looked at in terms of what was characteristic, what was, what, what was really the, the sum of who we really were as revealed in our deeds 
in our words and even in the thoughts and desires of our souls. This leads into my third point. The Bible teaches that there are ultimately only two kinds of people in the world, the righteous and the wicked, those who are in Christ and those who are not. One group will be justified or vindicated at the day of judgment. The other group will be condemned. Now, let me demonstrate that uh, from several passages in the Gospels, including the two that we read and have already commented upon. But think first with me about Matthew 12, verses 34 and following. Matthew 12, verses 34 and following. Our Lord was addressing the religious leaders of the Jews, men who prided themselves on how conservative they were in their religion. They, they prided themselves for being identified with the Old Testament scriptures. They prided themselves on their morality. They viewed themselves as superior to others. But in this passage, they're accusing Jesus of having cast out demons by the power of Beelzebub, by the power of the devil. And Jesus, in addressing these men who thus blasphemed the Holy Spirit in the way that they criticized him so meanly, Jesus says, you brood of vipers, how can you speak evil? Excuse me, how can you speak good when you are evil? For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. The good person out of his good treasure brings forth good. The evil person out of his evil treasure brings forth evil. I tell you, on the day of judgment, people will give account for every careless word they speak. For by your words, you will be justified. By your words, you will be condemned. Here in this passage, Jesus speaks very clearly, very explicitly, of there being two kinds of people in the world. There are what he calls good people, different from what our culture calls good people. There are people that Jesus describes as good people and those who are evil. And when he used that distinction, he was addressing those proud Pharisees as being exhibit A of evil people. They were arrogant they were self-righteous, they were mean, they were hypercritical, they were blasphemers. Now, they didn't look at themselves in the mirror and come away with any of those conclusions, but Jesus is speaking to them. There are two kinds of people when you are exemplifying the group that I am calling evil. He speaks of two kinds of people. He speaks of two kinds of hearts, one full of good treasure, the other full of evil. Jesus speaks of two characteristic ways of speaking because a foundational principle on speech is revealed in this passage. It is out of the abundance of what? That the mouth speaks. The heart. There are two kinds of hearts that give rise to two patterns of talking. And Jesus speaks finally of two verdicts that will be declared on the day of judgment using patterns of speech as the evidence, he, the final judge, will justify or vindicate those whose words were distinctively Christian words. They were words of faith. They were words of gratitude. They were words of love for God and words of love for others. Or they were characteristically evil, such as the blasphemy 
that these religious leaders were engaged in. Now, an important point. Jesus is not suggesting in this passage that those who are good, who have good treasure in their heart by his grace, and thus bring forth out of the abundance of heart speech that, generally speaking, characteristically honors God, Jesus is not suggesting that those people will be both justified and condemned at the final day. And he is certainly not suggesting that people like the arrogant Pharisees of old will be condemned and yet also justified because Jesus saw some good things in them. Jesus is describing two kinds of people, two ways of life, two ways of speaking that reflect two kinds of hearts. There are people with regenerate hearts. They've been born from above. The mighty, omnipotent spirit of God has come to dwell in them and it has changed them. They're not perfect. They're flawed, but they're real Christians. And you can't be around them for too long without realizing this is a duck. It's quacking. It's waddling. This is a duck. We can tell generally real Christians that they talk like real Christians because something's happened in their hearts. And also we can be around people who've been in church all their lives and are thought of as among the most respected citizens in the community and perhaps pride themselves on the things that they haven't done. They haven't committed adultery and they've never been drunk and they've worked in an ethical way. But we can be around some of those kind of people and we can sense after a while, especially if they're a family member or someone we work closely with or someone that we know well in friendship, we can tell they're not Christian. They never talk about Jesus. They have no sense of poverty of spirit that comes out and how they talk about themselves. There's no grieving in a godly way over their own sin or over the sins of others. Heaven is not in their hearts, it seems, because everything they say reflects upon the here and the now, what they can see, touch, and taste. Well, Matthew 12 is, is revealing two kinds of people, two kinds of hearts, two patterns of speech that will lead to one of two verdicts. They're justified, and here we should understand that verb more as being vindicated. The final justification of God's people will be a vindication that they were the real deal. They weren't fake. They weren't hypocrites. They really did follow Jesus. And they'll be vindicated as such. Those outside of Christ will be condemned. We noted earlier in the parable of the talents this same point. Two kinds of people. Those who are faithful. Those who were wicked. The one is praised. The other is condemned. We noted the same thing in the teaching where Jesus speaks of the sheep and the goats, two groups, those who love Jesus, those who do not love Jesus. The one group is praised, the other group is damned. Well, along with this clear emphasis on two kinds of people marked by two ways of life, there's a fourth main point that, that I want to make this morning, and that is that the Bible emphasizes that God in grace has blotted out the transgressions of his people. The Bible emphasizes that God in grace has blotted out the transgressions of his people. So when we think about this question that I referred to earlier, 
as an unsettling question. Will there be at the day of judgment, will King David have to just once again, however briefly, just, just have the, the video flash before a watching world of people and angels of his worst days when he took another man's wife and then arranged for the man to be murdered trying to cover his tracks? Will, will there be a, a public review of, of David's worst days? Will there be a public review of my worst moments? And inescapably, that, that involves some element of shame, doesn't it? It's real. We don't deny that we were that bad. But there's, there's some element of shame. I don't think that's consistent. The idea of there will be some element of shame at the Day of Judgment with the emphasis in the Bible that what God in grace has done is blotted out the transgressions of his people. And it's not my purpose to expound these texts. Let me just quote. These are verses worthy of memorization. These are verses of worthy of having in your armory when he who is the accuser of the brethren comes after you with his fierce, at times unrelenting accusations. Isaiah 43, verse 25. God says, I am he who blots out your transgressions for my own sake, and I will not remember your sins. That's a promise from Jehovah. I am he who has blotted out your transgressions, and I will not remember your transgressions. Yes, God is omniscient. He knows all. But he's saying, I, I pledge myself to engage in some holy amnesia. And that moment when you yelled at the kids and slammed the cabinet door shut, and that moment when, when you and your marriage looked like a couple of cats going at it in an alley verbally, and those thoughts that you know and I know went down the corridor of your mind that are filthy and that are wicked, and we know that it happened. God is saying, I, I pledge I'm going to engage in some holy amnesia and forget those things. They've been punished. They've been dealt with. I sent my son, and those, those things are forever removed. This is at the heart of the new covenant, as found in Jeremiah 31, verse 34, and reiterated in Hebrews 8 and in Hebrews 10. I will forgive their wrongdoing, and their sin I will no longer remember. For those of you who still appreciate the old King James Version, their lawless deeds I will remember no more. That is central to the new covenant, the oath-bound promise that our God has made. Micah 7, 19. Yes, you will cast all their sins into the depths of the sea. You know, there are places out there where the ocean is miles deep. I mean, if you jumped in, no matter what kind of feats you've accomplished in the local pool in terms of staying underwater, for, uh, you could go down and you could go down and you could go down and you would run out of breath before you touch bottom. Miles deep. And God, through the prophet Micah, uh, pictures his removal of sins from his sight as having cast those sins into the depths of the sea. Psalm 103, verse 12, as far as the east is from the what? The west. So far has he what? 
removed our transgressions from us. Now, y'all, this is not a secondary teaching of the Bible. This, this is at the core of the good news. God sent his son to live the life you and I have failed to live, to die, to bear the just indignation and punishment of God that all of us deserve, that all those who repent and believe might have those promises come true for them. Your life may have tons of dirty water that has gone under the bridge. You may look back upon your life and, and you may accurately be able to say, 90% of my life is just ugly. You may have horrible memories that at times wake you up at night. Things that you desperately wish you could go back and erase from the transcript. And you know you can't in the sense of psychologically, you can't entirely eliminate those things because they're real. That was you. But praise God, we have these emphatic, repeated promises in the Word of God. Your lawless deeds I will remember no more. Perhaps my favorite benediction in the New Testament is that found at the, at the end of the book of Jude. Like other scriptures, I learned it in college through a scripture song that helped me to fix it in my memory. And I can still remember uh, as a young man singing with fellow Christians, unto him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to make you, to make you stand in his presence, blameless with great joy. That is the promise of God, that his grace is so deep that it reaches beyond the depth of our iniquities, not just what we've done, but who we have been in our DNA, and that there's a grace that is able to make his people stand blameless with great joy. That's the day of judgment that Jude 24 and 25 envisions. My fifth and final point is one of clarification. Let me close by saying four things that I'm not telling you in this message. Four things that I'm not telling you in this message. The first is, I'm not saying that Christ's followers should not experience any fear or any dread in connection with thinking about the great day of judgment. How can you read Matthew 25 as we read together as a congregation? How can you read those words about what is awaiting those who are finally impenitent without having some sense of disturbance of soul? These are not just words on a page or a screen. There is coming a day when Jesus will say to many who have lived in this world, some of whom we have known and we have cared about, some of whom may be our own children or grandchildren or spouse or parent or sibling. How can we think of that day when Jesus will justly, in all fairness, condemn many to eternal destruction and not have some sense of holy dread that shadows our mind and heart. 
I'm not saying that this day is going to be a day of affirmation. It's just going to be a happy day, and, and we can just, we can just uh, happily breeze our way towards it. Millions will receive their final condemnation. In every generation, the majority of people have on, been on the broad way that is leading to destruction. Secondly, I'm not saying that Christ's followers should not ever experience any fear or dread in connection with what they themselves might face at the day of judgment. I'm not saying that Christ's people should never experience any fear or apprehension in connection with what we ourselves might face on that day. Let me explain, because that may not seem consistent with what I've argued for earlier. Is it not significant that even in the Garden of Eden, before temptation had come into God's pristine world, that God motivated Adam to obedience verbally by appealing to the motive of fear? And what did God say? Adam, this garden's for you. All the trees and the luscious fruit, enjoy it. I made it for you, son. Eat from every tree and feel the delightful texture, smell the wonderful fragrances, taste the delicious flavors. But Adam, there's one tree that you're not to eat from. And son, in the day that you eat from it, you'll what? You will die. That's, that's what we call a threat, right? That was a threat. The whole garden's for you, son. But there are rules, and one tree is off limits. And if you, if you defy me at this point, you will die. That was a threat. Well, the new covenant has threats as well for the people of God. Have you ever known somebody that you thought was a Christian and later realize that, that they, don't, they don't appear to be the real deal? Because real Christians don't abandon their wife and family and run off with another woman. Um, the Bible warns us against hypocrisy. The Bible warns us against deception. The New Testament comes to us with passages like, do not be deceived. These kinds of people, adulterers, revilers, will not inherit the kingdom of God. Jesus said to his own disciples, don't be afraid of those who can only kill the body. Be afraid of him who can kill body and soul in hell. He wasn't being a big meanie. He was just speaking realistically. We're, we're still, isn't that one of the themes of the Pilgrim's Progress? We're still on dangerous ground in measure until we reach the celestial city. There, there are enemies. And there's still that within us that threatens to betray us. And so, so one of the things that, that God may use to keep you in the way of holiness is the re realization that at the day of judgment, the real you will stand before the real Jesus. Is there anyone here who's playing games with God? Is there anyone here this morning who you're one thing in your Sunday business casual dress and you're something else? when you're away from professing Christians. Well, one of the things that God uses 
is his teaching on Judgment Day. We should always be afraid of sinning. Third, I'm not saying that every true believer of Christ will receive the same measure of affirmation and praise at the Day of Judgment. I do believe that all those in Christ, from the weakest to the strongest, will receive praise, but not all will receive the same praise. You know, I praise God that, that in Hebrews 11, there's reference to Samson. And in 2 Peter 2, there's reference to Lot. Because if all I had was the book of Judges and Genesis chapter 19, I'd be inclined to think, I don't think I'll see those guys in heaven. Because as we read the narrative of Samson's life and as we read the narrative of Lot's life, we are not very impressed with their godliness. But Hebrews 11 says Samson had faith. And 2 Peter 2 emphasizes righteous Lot, righteous Lot, righteous Lot. He was tormented by the wickedness going on around him in Sodom and Gomorrah. But will, will a Samson receive as much praise as a Daniel or a Joseph? I think not. Will a Lot receive as much praise as a Rahab, uh, a Canaanite, one who'd been a prostitute but whose faith was great? God, God will make distinctions. And some people will receive less praise than others. Some people will receive less reward than others. There'll be ministers who, however impressed their congregations were with them, the final day will show a burning of a lot of what was wood, stubble, and hay. And Jesus warns his people, his followers about, you know, you can live in such a way and you'll get your reward now, but there'll be no reward down the road in heaven. You were too concerned about what others thought about you and you were, you were serving for people more than you were serving for me. So I'm not saying in this message that everyone's experience will be entirely uniform in the praise that they receive. Speaking of Christians now, God's people. And then lastly, I'm not saying that the affirmation of Christ's people on that day means that we will be the ones primarily in the spotlight. It's It's precious that Jesus will say things like Matthew 25 describes him as saying. I mean, this, this is not wishful thinking. This is the Bible. This is Jesus' own teaching. So we have warrant to anticipate that our Savior will, will speak in this kind of way, drawing attention to us and what we did, and that he, and that he affirms the genuineness of what we did. And he rewards things that his grace alone produced in our lives. But we know that Jesus elsewhere taught that the Father had honored him by putting judgment into his hands so that the Son and the Father may ultimately be honored. John 5, 32 and following. And what that final day will really be about is not how special you and I were but how special Jesus Christ was. And we will, we will have, if we're Christians, an unprecedented sense 
of the magnitude of his love. And what that will fill our hearts with is not, wow, I was really special, wasn't I? But what will fill our hearts is how special a Savior God has given for people like us, for people who knew us in our worst moments, for one who knew us in our worst moments, and who knew that in our best moments there was so much worthy of being condemned and yet received us, used us, and is prepared to affirm us because of how great his grace is. Do you know that grace? Do you know Jesus as your Savior before you meet him as your judge? The good news of the Bible is that you can and you should receive Christ. Live in light of that great day. It is on the calendar. It is coming. No one here will miss it. But look forward to that day. That day when we're presented faultless before the throne by the grace of our God. Let's pray together. Our God, we thank you for the opportunity to ponder these things. And we pray that you would take your word and cause it to sink down deep into our souls and bring forth fruit for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.